quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Sources tell CNN that Joe Biden will formally announce that he's running for a second term next week. Team Biden will reportedly put out a video on Tuesday, which happens to be the four-year anniversary of his 2020 campaign launch. His announcement will come a week after a spate of young people getting shot for innocent mistakes. Today, it's a basketball rolling into the wrong yard that got a six-year-old and her parents shot in North Carolina. In the past week, there's been A 16-year-old shot for ringing the wrong doorbell. A 20-year-old shot and killed for pulling into the wrong driveway. And two cheerleaders shot for opening the wrong car door. Is this uncontrolled anger or widespread fear? Author and presidential candidate Marianne Williamson is going to be on our panel to share what she thinks is at the root of this sickness. Also, I sit down with a group of dedicated Fox viewers who share their thoughts on Fox's historic $787 million payout for spreading falsehoods about Dominion voting systems. The audience is not looking to be lied to. It's looking to give context to something that we know is true from a, a certain perspective, and that's, that's got a value. But there is a line not to cross. And once you know that something is not true, you need to let them know. Okay, but let's start with President Biden's announcement. We have on our panel Alencia Johnson, who is a senior advisor to the Biden 2020 campaign. Also, Doug High, former RNC communications director. My on-again, off-again work husband, LZ Granderson, and legal eagle, Ellie Honig. I'm the third wheel. Yeah, you can say it about Ellie as well. I mean, I agree. You're also, I'm a work bigamist, so I'm I'm polygamist, actually. No judgments. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. All right, Alencia, what should we expect on Tuesday? What is President Biden going to say in this announcement? Listen, I was an advisor on the 2020 campaign. But you know him well enough to know what he'll say. I I think, you know, he's going to talk about the policies that have been working. He's going to give a great uh, speech. He's also going to give a stark contrast of what we will see on the Republican side and what they are not doing for the American people and how they are chipping away at democracy and on the wrong side of these issues like abortion, gun control, all of these issues that so many young people, people of color, women, the base of the Democratic Party, the rising majority are are for. And so you'll see that in his in his speech. Doug, as a Republican hand for a long time, what do you think he needs to say and what do you think um, his weaknesses. Well, it's a very nice way to call me old. Um, <laughs> the timing on this is, is very interesting because he's also the subtext is going to be it was four years ago today that I launched the campaign that got Donald Trump out of the White House. So that's going to be a unifying message for Democrats. Clearly, he's going to make distinctions with Republicans, but we don't know if he's going to do it on really the number one issue uh, that he's facing right now with Republicans, and that's the debt ceiling. And he needs to address this not only in a video, but also moving forward with a lot of unknowns. And it goes to what his campaign's about, the uncertainty around the debt ceiling and what that's going to create. And tying in that, the fact that even though the economy is in a better place and inflation is falling, voters aren't feeling that way. His numbers are in the tank when it comes to his handling of the economy. And that's going to be his big driver for his reelection. But aren't Republicans also responsible for this debt ceiling holdup? 
Sure, but there's only one president. There's only one person who can be elected president. He's trying to make that distinction right now between uh, House Republicans. He'll try and throw Mitch McConnell's name around there as well. But we have to we have to find out what's going to happen in this. And we're still in such a period of unknowns on this. And even the unknown or even the known unknowns are still unknown at this point. So there's a lot of problems here for this politically for both sides. It's risky business. That's awesome. Um, uh, LZ, here's his, uh, President Biden's approval ratings at their the latest that we have. I think 42 percent overall, 57 percent disapproving of the job he's doing. What do you think he needs to say? Well, it's not a say thing at this point. It's a do thing, right? And I think the important thing for him to do is to say what he's done. You know, list the accomplishments. Remind Americans where you were four years ago, where you are today. And if you want that same sort of stability, then you may want to continue on with the same person in the White House. And if you want to go back to where you were four years ago, then you consider the other side. I think that's a very powerful argument. You consider the chaos that's around everything. But also it's smart for him to announce because... A lot of oxygen has been sucked up by Trump because of the indictment. And you're beginning to see Republicans rally around him and build momentum behind him. This is a good way. Make this announcement so that you have Democrats now in your circuits being able to talk about your presidency and the things that you accomplished so that you can get back some of that momentum that seems to be going towards Trump. Yeah, and it's interesting if I can pick up on that. I'll, I'll, if, I, if I may ask some questions because these are the political <laughs> Absolutely. I'm actually curious if, if both of you as Democratic strategists and Republican strategists, just in terms of winning, do, do you want... In an ideal world, would you want Biden as the nominee? And Doug, would you want to face Biden as the nominee? Look, President Biden, he was the president that ushered in what, you know, I say was a dehydrated red wave in 2022, right? (laughs) Like, it's his policies and his agenda that is winning for a lot of these voters, and that's what they want to see. And so, you know, I I think sometimes when we talk about our politics, folks are used to the Obama type of candidate. That's a once in a generation. Get somebody in the office that you can agree with on certain issues, you know you can push on certain issues, and a lot of people see that in President Biden. He's also got Vice President Harris out there on a lot of these issues. She's really strong on voting rights, abortion rights. This whole week she's been talking about it. And so, yeah, look, I want him as my my candidate. Yeah, I'm going to give you the honest answer. I don't know at this point. And there are two reasons for that. One, Biden's argument is I can beat Trump because I'm the only one who has is both true and unprovable. And so (laughs) for Republicans, they're trying to figure that out. They certainly like where his poll numbers are, want to keep them there. But the question then is also, who do they have that's going against Donald Trump? So with Biden's core argument, I can beat Trump because I've beaten Trump. If the nominee is Trump, well, Republicans are still concerned, regardless of where Trump is in the polls right now in the primary. Well, Nancy, one of the weaknesses that keeps coming up in polls when you ask Americans is that it's his age. And what he has said is, watch me. Watch my watch what I do. And you tell me that you don't think that, you know, I have the energy for this job. So does he need to say more about that? Does he need to address that in a different way? I don't think so. I mean, he literally said it. Let's take it head on. He said it. It's a legitimate question. So just watch me. I can show you better than I can tell you. And he's out here again telling people about the policies that his administration has put forward, talking about who's blocking other policies that would help the American people. He's talking to labor unions about the economy. Uh, You know, the Republicans are talking to Wall Street executives. And so, you know, I, I think the age conversation 
if and when Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, you kind of can't really have that conversation anymore, right? You know, I, I, I can understand why the age or his age is a constant conversation. Obviously, if Trump is the nominee, his age as well. But I'm more interested in the age that we're in, right? There are conversations that we're having now that no other president has had to deal with before, starting with artificial intelligence. So I think a lot of younger voters are going to be asking themselves, which of these candidates can actually navigate through some of the trickier things, some of the technology issues, not just the culture wars, but climate change is real. And more and more young people are talking about it, not in a hypothetical, but in a definitive sort of way, the way that we talk about the weather. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I, I teach college undergrads and they're doing presentations on existential threats to us and climate change is one of them. I, speaking of conversations that we've never had to have before, we're going to have a major party candidate or, or potentially front runner who's under indictment, as you mentioned. And I thought it was so interesting before LZ talked about it as almost a political asset. Right. You're saying Biden is smart to, to get out now because people are coalescing around Trump. I mean, I wonder how that will play. I mean, I, I can give you all you want on the legal nuances of the indictment. <laughs> probably more. You probably heard enough from me on that. But I'm curious how you all think that'll play politically. You know, I think it helps. I help. It helps the Biden campaign. It's going to help Democrats because, again, we know who the enemy is, and not just Trump, but the Trump MAGA Republicans. It's not just him doing the bidding. It's the DeSantis's of the world. It's the McCarthy's of the world. It's all these people. In addition to that. He's an indicted crooked criminal who is running for office. And this is just one case that we've seen in New York. There are others that we're waiting to hear how they're going to address it as well. Isn't it strange if it helps Biden and it helps Trump? Americans really get engaged when there's an indictment. So he's indicted and he's crooked. He's not a criminal yet. That's up to, obviously, a, a, a good judge bumper and a jury sticker. to find <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. might work. Yeah. But this is, the interesting thing is, with Trump, it's, there's a long term and a short term. The short term, short term has been a big benefit for him. We saw the money that he raised. We saw the party coalesce around him. But if there are more indictments, that long term problem is, is bad for him in the, in the general and in the primary. In the primary, if we see more, uh, more indictments... It's easy for a DeSantis or any of the other candidates to say, there's too much drama. Hey, Donald Trump, he was a great president, but we have to move on. And that might have some salience. If it was easy, in general. if it was easy, though, not to cut you off, but you're making it sound as if all you need is proof that he's not electable. He's been already impeached twice and they're right. still afraid right. to say his name. But I, I think these indictments actually show his base coalesces around him. But these indictments also rile up a base of folks back to your earlier question of whether or not they want Biden as the candidate. They just don't want Trump. And the more that we reveal about Trump, the more that these indictments come down, that's going to rile up a whole base to vote against him. Well, I just think there's a difference between this this indictment that we've seen that does have politics attached to it in a way that, say, Georgia and potentially DOJ wouldn't. Even a lot of Democrats have said, this is not the indictment that we want under Donald Trump. Well, we're keeping an eye on what's going to happen next with the indictments. Uh, Thank you, friends, very much. Really appreciate that conversation. Up next, Democratic presidential candidate and author Marianne Williamson is going to join our panel with her thoughts on and her plans on how to heal the problems and the soul of America. Here she comes. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, Hi. Nice great to, to have you. Nice yeah. to see you, Allison. Nice to see you again. The suspect in the latest senseless shooting, Robert Singletary, surrendered tonight after being accused of shooting a six-year-old 
and her parents because a basketball rolled into his yard in North Carolina. Yet another insane shooting of a young person this week, leaving all Americans grasping for answers to this epidemic of fear and violence. My panel is back with me and joining us is Marianne Williamson, Democratic presidential candidate and best-selling author. It's so great to have you here. Oh, it's always good to see you. Thank you. You too. We had you booked for many weeks, and it's just perfect that you're here tonight. Thank you so much. So, um, I mean, I'll just run through every night this week. We have reported on yet another, I mean, truly insane shooting for ringing the wrong doorbell, for pulling into the wrong driveway, for a ball, a child's ball, rolling into the wrong yard. Um, How do you explain what's happening in America? And obviously, as a candidate, what can we do about this? Well, there's no rational explanation for such an explosion of that which is not reasonable. But I think that the possibility of something good here is that so many Americans on both left and right recognize that something has gone too far. I do think. I think something people are, that's what I'm sensing in the country. People realize that something has gone too far. I think we're ready to go beyond the quite sophomoric debate of is it culture or is it policy? It is so clearly both. Uh, Our policies, I'm definitely on the side of wanting an assault weapon ban, of wanting stronger red flag laws, federal uh, red flag laws, the bump stocks, the high capacity magazines and so forth. But it's also true we have to ask ourselves, what is happening in our culture. Our culture has lost any sense of reverence. Our culture is not centered around humanitarian values any longer. We are centered around economic values. Short-term profit maximization for huge corporate entities has become our governing principle. This has been going on for decades. It's like left so many people in economic despair, economic anxiety. And this is what's not being addressed on the level of cause. It's not being addressed on the level of policy or of attention and focus. And I think all of us have our part to play in doing what we can, both in our own hearts and in our own relationships and in our own communities and and taking care of one another. And on that, what can you do? What can we do? What are some easy things to do or policy things? Well, policy things, I think we... People recognize this. The issue centers a lot around the easy access to guns. We know we have more guns than people in the society. Also, there's a lot of conversation, as you've already covered here tonight, about how there are people on television making a lot of money breeding fear. We, we have a, a culture where people are actually making money, breeding fear. And it's not just gun manufacturers. It's journalists and journalistic corporations. We need to come back from the brink here. In terms of what all of us can do as individuals, I think everybody in their own life can ask, who am I not forgiving? Who am I not loving? Where am I not showing up kindly? How many times when we see something like these young men, for instance, and others who have who've committed these, these mass shootings, and you ask yourself, What happened in this person's life? What one person might have made a difference? And I'll tell you something. We have the sociological experts who have explained that to us, but our lawmakers are not listening. Too many people in America are falling through the cracks. Too many children are falling through the cracks. We have children who are traumatized before uh, preschool now. We have elementary school students on suicide watch. We have millions of American children whose daily life is a level of post-traumatic stress. So until we are ready to get down and recognize the, the level of irreverence that is at the center of how we are organizing our society today, all of us need to get off our smug high horses and stop pointing the finger at other people and asking in our own lives and in our own attitudes where both politically and personally we might become more harmless, 
more loving, more compassionate. And don't leave politics out of that either, because when you neglect a child, you are adding to the petri dish, to the petri dish of societal dysfunction. We, you think we have a uh, mental health crisis now, Allison? Look at what we're going to have 10 or 15 years from now, having raised a generation of children praying every morning, I won't be shot at school today. Not only that, but little children who know that the adults aren't doing anything about it. Absolutely. Why? Because of multi-billion dollar profits for gun manufacturers. I mean, even those who have it, the amount of kids who have lived through or somehow a school shooting has touched their lives is incredible. And even those who haven't, they still do active shooter drills. The the active shooter drills. Absolutely. So, uh, Doug, what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot that can be done, but we can't do everything at once. And, it, and part of that is, is the fractures that we have in Washington, but also in state capitals. And there are things that, that do give me hope. I've been involved with some of the efforts in Tennessee right now. In Tennessee, Republican governor, Republican House, mm-hmm. Republican Senate. Mm-hmm. But there's possibility <clears throat> that they can get gun legislation through. Go- uh, governor Lee supports it. You have the former... The, the two previous former governors, a Republican and Democrat, have because of the latest school shooting, that's what's galvanized Be- them. Because of this, and the polling, After Louisville, uh, the polling and Nashville, <laughs> uh, the Covenant school shooting, the polling shows. I, the poll came out yesterday um, that um, Voices um, for a Safer Tennessee put out mm-hmm. from Donald Trump's pollster, uh, Fabrizio Lee, that show that gun owners and Trump voters, as well as Democrats and independents, support things like safe locks, locks for guns. Uh, support things like uh, extreme risk, a 72-hour waiting notice. If you had told me three weeks ago that we would see 70% of gun owners in Tennessee say that, I'd say you're crazy. But we're seeing that now. We're we're not going to be able to do everything. But if we can do the small things, if if politics is the art of the possible, doing what's possible now will go a long way into preventing some of these tragedies. Elsie? You know, I grew up in Detroit. And so my relationship to gun violence might be a little bit different than, you know, some other people because I don't want to say that I'm used to these crazy shootings, but drive-by shootings don't make sense either. And that's what I grew up in, you know, where little kids would be outside playing and someone would drive by and just spray bullets because someone they think is standing near the child is there. So I grew up in gun violence and seeing senselessness and deaths for no reason almost my entire life. And I can tell you, because my therapist has told me, I'm not okay. (laughs) Like that has an effect on people. And so I believe you're 1000% correct. The the toll of gun violence, not just on children, but the parents and the family members, who the friends who didn't get shot or survive having survivor's remorse. We're just beginning to talk about the mental weight of what gun violence is doing to us as a nation. And you can compound the fact that Come on, we haven't even begun to flesh out what 2020 did to us in terms of the, the isolation from COVID. So when you, I look at those two things, adding in with the economic stress, adding in with the racism and the hate that's coming up, I can see why it feels as if the world is falling apart. But I do believe that once we get to a point in which Democrats and Republicans are saying enough is enough, that we can get past this as a nation because we've been here before time and time again and we've worked our way through it. But I think right now we're just in a dark place right now because everyone is under a lot of stress for a lot of different reasons and mental health is just beginning to be taken seriously by this nation culturally. I want to believe that's going to pass. Well, I I agree with with all three of you that it's about about culture and it's about policy. And one of the things that I think gets overlooked, policy we talk about, uh, red flag laws and and limits on semi-automatics, but there's also a legal element of this, which is 
a lot of these shootings that are happening in driveways and on streets and in yards, you hear people say stand your ground laws. Can I please make a public service announcement? I mean Thank this. You. Because I think there is a mis, a vast misunderstanding of what these laws do and do not mean. Stand your ground laws do not mean you get to shoot anyone. Right. They do not mean that even if you're in your own home and someone's on your property, you get to open fire. That is not what they mean. In all circumstances, you can only use lethal force, shoot a weapon, if you have a reasonable belief that somebody is about to kill or maim you or somebody else. And a basketball or pulling into a driveway or pulling open a screen door does not get you there. Then I have a question for you. Yes. Why was Drayvon Martin's shooter uh, not convicted? So, well, th- that was based on the totality of those circumstances. But you're right. That's a great example where stand your ground law. The main difference that stand your ground law makes is you do not have a duty to retreat. So under states that don't have those laws... If you can get away safely, you have to do that. In, in Florida, where Trayvon Martin happened, they do have standard ground laws, which enabled Robert Zimmerman to say, I don't have a duty to retreat. So it does change the calculus, but it does not mean it's open season to just start shooting. That's really helpful. <clears throat> yeah, it's really good to know that. So um, beyond gun violence, what do you want to say? What, what are your priorities for running for president? Well, I think that one of the things we've talked about here already is that things are not okay. We have 39% of Americans who now report, 44% of millennials, that they have skipped meals in order to pay their rent. We have one in four Americans who live with medical debt. We have 64% of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. 60% of Americans who could not absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. Look at those facets that I just talked to you about, and you talked to me about mental health. We talk about the mental health crisis. We need to talk about what's at the root of that and to talk about how much of that comes from chronic economic anxiety. We have a political class. We have a political class that is not planning any fundamental economic reform. And I am running for president. I'm running as a Democrat um, because incremental change is not enough. Um, when you have a lack of universal health care, although we have it in every other country, when we in every other advanced democracy, every other advanced democracy has uh, tuition-free college, you know, which we had until the 1960s. You know, I'm old enough, Allison. There was a time in this faraway land called the 1970s when the average American, there was a thriving middle class. The average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford to send one parent to, uh, to keep, one parent could stay home if they wished, and they could afford to send their kids to college. So, no, people are not okay, and I'm running for president because we need a fundamental economic U-turn, not just incremental change. People need to have health care in this country, need to be able to go to college. People need the bandwidth to thrive. And if all a politician can say is, I'll help you survive an unjust system in the richest country in the world, something is wrong. We need someone from outside that system to say the system should not be unjust. We need an economic U-turn, and that's what I will do if I'm elected president. Friends, thank you very much for this great conversation. Okay, next. Are you offended by the word ladies? Our next, <laughs> Our next guest says he lost a great job offer as a school superintendent because he said ladies. He's here to explain next. A candidate for school superintendent in East Hampton, Massachusetts, says his job offer was rescinded because he used the word ladies... In an email, the man is Vito Perone. He joins us now with his attorney, James Winston. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for being here. Notice what I just did there? 
I said, gentlemen, and sometimes I actually say ladies. And so, Mr. Perone, is it really true that you lost this job offer because you addressed the board chair and her executive assistant as ladies in an email? We have that email. Let me just pull it up. You said, ladies, good morning. And then you went out to spell some of your requests in this job negotiation. So was it really the ladies part or was it what you were demanding in the job negotiation that, that lost you the job offer? Uh, the, the, the reason that was given to me was because I used ladies as a greeting. It was considered offensive uh, to the chair and she called it a microaggression. Uh, we never had an opportunity to really negotiate at all. Uh, they voted in an executive session to rescind the offer. Uh, and that was really where things ended. And what did you think when she said that she was offended by ladies and it was a microaggression? Well, initially, uh, I was apologetic, said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend anyone. It wasn't my intent. You know, I grew up in a time when ladies and gentlemen was, uh, were, were terms of respect. And that was what I meant them as. Uh, and I was hopeful that we could kind of move forward from there. But unfortunately, uh, the, the chair and the mayor were pretty adamant that uh, the apology didn't matter at that point. They had already voted and they had rescinded the offer uh, for me. And so that's really where things left off. Hmm. OK, so she has a slightly different um explanation now. Um, so the board chair, um, Cynthia Kwasinski, I hope I'm saying that right, um, says now that the general feeling was that there were too many concerns before we had even begun negotiating the rest of the contract and alarm bells were going off. Each item that I've mentioned by itself would be redeemable, but taken together, it was becoming clear to most members that we would not be able to come to terms or work together effectively with the applicant. So were, were there other, other things that cropped up? Uh, none that they made me aware of in our executive session. The executive session agenda was uh, one item, a negotiation with me. Uh, we never got to negotiate. Uh, there was never any mention of anything other than the fact that I said ladies, which was a microaggression. Um, after the fact, it seemed like there was a misrepresentation and there was some communication from the chair saying that those things that I requested were unreasonable. However, um, asking for four extra days of vacation doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Asking for a cost of living increase uh, on my salary for years two and three doesn't seem unreasonable. And starting with a sick bank doesn't seem unreasonable. When I had worked in the district for six years and I had over 70 days uh, banked up uh, before I um, moved on to another placement. So uh, I never intended to use all that sick bank in a year. It's just, it gives you a sense of assurance when you start a position, if you have a sick bank. Uh, Mr. Winston, I only have 30 seconds left, but what's the recourse here? Really the reasoning they're giving is a pretext. They, they saw the original firestorm that, that their reasoning caused, and, and this is nothing more than a pretext. The reason they didn't hire him is the reason they told them is because he used the term ladies. Um, as far as recourse, um, just uh, less than two weeks ago was the meeting where they actually rescinded the offer. There was another candidate that they offered to that withdrew uh, late last week, this past week, they've been on vacation. There's another meeting. So this is a very fluid situation. We're considering our options, but we're hoping this is a teachable moment for everybody in the community. Dr. Perlman deeply cares about the students and the teachers and the community in East Hampton. 
and we, we hope everything works out for all concerned. And we want to thank you for having us here. Well, thank you both for being on. And please keep us posted. Vito Perone, James Winston, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. The panel is back with me, Marianne Williamson, Doug High, Elsie Granderson, and Ellie Honig. Marianne, are you offended if somebody calls you lady? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think what that gentleman said, I just called him a gentleman. (laughs) It was a sign of respect. When I said it was a sign of respect, I think, like he said, he grew up in a time, as did I, by the way, ladies and gentlemen is a sign of respect. I think today, because of the gender issues, I often say ladies and gentlemen and everyone else. You know, that that is is today's language. But I I think his having the offer rescinded because that's considered a microaggression uh, by someone is terrible. One of the things that she had said was that he didn't address her formally with her name. So instead of Ms. Williamson, he said, and uh, whoever her executive assistant and her name, he said ladies. He had no idea that that was showing any less respect. I believe him because that would be true for me. I could see starting a letter if I was speaking to a couple of, of men saying, gentlemen, this morning we should discuss. Any thoughts? I mean, that says it all. My feelings are this: if, if if the employer says this is offensive to the culture, then that's the offensive to the culture of where he's applying. Like, I I don't know if I can, from a distance, decide whether or not someone should be offended or something. Though I can certainly see how someone of authority could see that being a little too familiar. I can't see that, but I can't see that being the sole purpose of, of rescinding an offer. So do, do the gentlemen at the table ever use the phrase ladies? One, yes. But in, in Washington, if you're in Congress and you, you're referring, you will refer to the female <laughs> yes. member of Congress as the gentle the lady. Gentle and lady. one of the things I worry about is we, we've talked earlier about all these issues that go on. We heard the word microaggression so often. And so often in America, we focus <laughs> on the microaggressions. When there are a whole lot of macroaggressions that we ought to be paying more attention to. And it's a cover for not. Absolutely. It's a cover for what? Well, we're talking about the little microaggressions rather than talking about the more serious issues of genuine uh, aggression and oppression of people in our society that are the more serious issues. This is like a cover. I agree but, but with But microaggressions, though, can be serious. They, they can I mean, be. I mean, if, if, go, if, they, go, if they go untreated and they happen on a daily basis, the accumulation of that could be just as powerful as one singular major aggression. But don't you have to, with a microaggression, I mean, I know I'm speaking broadly, but couldn't you just have said, I, I'd prefer you address me by my name? Thank I mean, you. Can't, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I, like I said, I wouldn't have gone full nuclear on that, but that's, again, <laughs> that's not my culture. I'm not in charge of developing the culture of that work environment. I also think intent It matters. was a school. He, he's, he's not, if you look at the full email, the tiny print, it's pure business. He's not trying to condescend to them. I think we have to be reasonable and ask, what's the entire context here? Yeah. It's all, I mean, it is a little old timey. I'll grant them <laughs> that. And even when I say ladies, I know I'm sort of hearkening back mm-hmm. to a different time because I think most women like to be called women, but not ladies. But you don't say, hey, women. I know that would have been disrespectful. I mean, what I don't was recommend supposed- that. <laughs> Well, it's funny to hear Doug say that, you know, on Congress, it's a good point. You say the gentle lady. One of, one of the conversations we actually had as prosecutors, old timers would address a jury. They would stand up and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, today you will hear. I didn't like that. It felt maybe a little too old timey for me. So my, my trick with the jury, I would say we. 
we are going to learn, because then you're part of the jury. Oh, that's oh. good. Yeah. Little, little lawyer trick out there for, for all good. the law, law yeah. students. But ladies and gentlemen is the formal thing that some people use in, in Congress and in courts. Ladies and germs still works, though. <laughs> that's always on works. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a geographical issue, though, too. Different parts of the country yeah. and the South. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and in fact, some... People say gals, which is very old-timey, but it's still meant, I think, I say, I say as gals a, a lot, actually. I say gals. That's I sort of can't believe we're having um, All right, friends, thank you very much. Be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Some of our favorite reporters will join me to talk about the big stories that they are covering today. But first, I speak with Fox viewers. Will the defamation lawsuit with Dominion stop them from tuning in? Will they see the network differently? I ask those questions and they answer next. Fox has to pay Dominion Voting Systems $787 million for making false statements about the voting machines. It was a huge story for the past two years in the media world, but very rarely mentioned on Fox. So what do Fox viewers know about what happened? I sat down with a group of them to find out. Here is our Pulse of the People. Show of hands, how many of you had heard about this two-year legal battle between Dominion and Fox before our producer called you. Two of you had heard about it. I was aware um, of the claims that had made against Dominion and, and, you know, the allegations of voter fraud more broadly. I just wasn't aware that Dominion had uh, filed essentially a defamation suit against Fox. How many of you are surprised by the $787 million settlement that Fox agreed to pay to Dominion for broadcasting false information about the voting systems? None of you. Reagan, your thoughts. It was damning to Fox. Um, So at some point, you have to make a business decision on both ends. And I, I thought, you know, it would probably be in Fox's best interest to settle. Obviously, Fox made those claims in some capacity. And... Dominion took issue with it. So, okay, they sued him. What I came away from the court filing with was a lot of this is a matter of opinion. This has been over a year, correct? So for them to come to the table with no evidence to back up their claims, that's really Mm. frustrating because it's quite frankly, uh, we've had millions of Americans that have been doing their homework since 2020. It's pretty easy to find some... uh, funny stuff. I'm wondering how you feel knowing that one of the things that came out during Discovery was how different the hosts felt behind the scenes than what they were saying on the air. For instance, when Tucker Carlson said behind the scenes after the election on November 23rd, 2020, he says, I had to try to make the White House disavow Sidney Powell, which they obviously should have done long before. Laura Ingram in her text responds, no serious lawyer could believe what they were saying. Well, I, I lost, I lost trust in them prior to that. Um, anyway, when when uh, Fox was calling out the election, I know a lot of people felt this way. They were calling out the election prematurely for Arizona, and then after that, you know, there's been a lot of talking out both sides of their mouth. The audience is not looking to be lied to; it's looking to give context to something that we know is true from a, a certain perspective, and that's that's got a value. But there is a line not to cross. And once you know that something is not true, 
You need to let them know because then they can move on, move on and accept that they lost. The conservatives lost this last election, not because of some nefarious deep state shadowy thing. So, you know, Allison, you spoke about, um, well, you know, certain Fox hosts knew about this, but they went forward with it anyway. Uh, one, I'm really happy that that they have uh, divergent opinions in private and they, and they say, gosh, you know, I'm not really sure about this. I think they're going to learn a lesson. This ha this lesson has to happen to cost them seven hundred and eighty seven million dollars, which is a number I can't hardly imagine. But and what is that lesson, Ryan? I, I mean, but, but what is that lesson? Well, I think that lesson is that um, the news it should be based wholly on truth. There's a certain level of willful blindness, but people see what they want to see. And that's true on the left and it's true on the right. But I don't look to any of the networks, including Fox, as the ultimate arbiter of truth. One more question. Show of hands. How many of you will still be devoted Fox watchers? <laughs> I mean, not sure if it's devoted, but... I'll okay. still partake. <laughs> so th three of I'm you. I'm used to being the odd man out. That's okay. So guys, of the three who are still going to be Fox watchers, um, Ian, will you take what they say with more of a grain of salt now? Uh, as I stated earlier, I take everyone uh, with a grain of salt. Reagan, what about you? Will you be will you be listening to Fox with through um, a different lens, taking it more with a grain of salt, or you should always look within when something you know, big like this happens, a big case like this. So, yeah, I think there's going to be an extra filter on that lens when I watch Tucker. Ryan, will you be watching through a different filter, as Reagan said? I think I'm going to be expanding my net some more. Allison, you might be winning a new future viewer. But also, um, you know, the things that Fox News is showing is not necessarily the things that CNN is showing. And expanding my net will be, I think, helpful so that I don't see these, I don't have these blind spots like this uh, Dominion case. Our thanks to our panel there. And if you want to comment on it, feel free to find me on social media at Allison Camerata. Okay, big news tonight for Alec Baldwin. Prosecutors have dropped the charges against him for that fatal shooting of the cinematographer on Rust. We'll tell you why next. Prosecutors announcing that Alec Baldwin will be cleared of involuntary manslaughter charges in the fatal shooting of the on the Rust movie set. A source tells CNN the decision was made after new evidence emerged that indicated the gun used in the shooting had been modified. Helena Hutchins, the film cinematographer, was killed by a live round fired from a prop gun held by Baldwin while rehearsing a scene in 2021. The film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, was also charged with involuntary manslaughter. The charges against her remain in place. Baldwin posting on Instagram after the announcement thanking his wife and attorney as part of a wrongful death settlement with Hutchins' husband. Production on Rust has resumed. Filming began today at the Yellowstone Film Ranch in Montana. The church scene where the fatal shooting occurred will be cut from the film. Okay, so coming up, we have some of our favorite reporters here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow. They're joining me right now. I'll be talking to them momentarily. That's next.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here, here with me tonight, we have Harry Anton, Elena Treen, Athena Jones, and Bryn Gingras. Great to have all of you. Okay, so plans are officially underway for President Joe Biden to formally announce his bid for a second term. Elena is following this story for us. So, Elena, how will this unfold next week? Right. So I think the big question that everyone has been asking now for months is, will President Biden run again? And the answer is yes, he is. And it's going to be announced as early as next week. We're hearing Tuesday that he'll be rolling out a campaign video. Uh, it's also, I mean, in classic Biden fashion, he's going to be, uh, you know, he's very fond of anniversaries, uh, fond of being sentimental. Uh, and it's going to be potentially on Tuesday, like I said, on the four-year anniversary of when he launched his 2020 campaign. So um, that's what we're all paying attention to. And I think it's really interesting. There's been a lot of debate behind the scenes about the timing for this. And I think one of the big questions was, does he wait to get into the race? Because there is, I think, a benefit to focusing on his agenda and also staying above the fray when it comes to a lot of the Republican politics that are playing out. But at the same time, and I think the reason they're trying to announce as early as next week is because they want to get this fundraising operation underway and they really want to start energizing voters around him, especially those who are skeptical about his age and and also whether he's progressive enough to continue in the White House. That was going to be one of my questions, which is what changes on Tuesday? Like what will change for all of us? How will we see will we see something different? You know, it's a great question. I think that his his team is trying to figure out how to change President Biden and the man in the White House into campaign Biden. Um, I know that the DNC is very involved in trying to make sure that his image is as great as it can be and also to try and project to voters that Biden is still fit to serve in office, that he isn't too old, that he still is with it, which is some of the questions that I think have been plaguing his administration so far over the last year and a half. Um, And I do think that he's going to be leaning much harder into what we see as the traditional campaign stops, touting what he's been able to do while in office so far, and also trying to reach voters. And the same that we saw him do it on the 2020. 2020 campaign trail, which was the retail politicking that we know Biden's actually pretty good at, the charm that he can use. I think we're going to see that uh, be rolled out much earlier than people had anticipated. Okay, because you'll remember his critics said that he wasn't doing enough campaigning out in the real world and that he was in his basement. So we'll see a different style, obviously, because it's not COVID anymore. Yes. And I do think that this will be interesting because, I mean, that was such a benefit for Biden in 2020. Because of COVID, you know, Donald Trump was able to draw a lot of viewers and voters to his rallies. They were like rock concerts. You know, Donald Trump with the music and the crowd and the and the signs. Biden, on the other hand, doesn't always have that same appeal. Uh, So I think it's going to be very interesting this time around when everything's back in person, when crowds are going to be coming out in full force again to see if he can keep up with some of the the rock star Republicans that we're going to see on the trail. I'll just note, you know, what won't change next Tuesday is he will still be Joe Biden, right? He's not going to magically become Barack Obama and start giving these wonderful oratory addresses. That is not going to not going to happen. Look, at the end of the day, Joe Biden is the heavy favorite for the Democratic nomination if he does, in fact, announce on Tuesday. Right. What I think he's looking forward to is perhaps trying to rev up more enthusiasm among the Democrats. Right. It's not about the number of votes he necessarily will get in the primary. It's about the general election and making sure that, hey, I have an 80 percent approval rating with Democrats, but they're not necessarily enthusiastic about my candidacy. When I face off against whoever the Republican nominee will be, is it just going to be enough that let's say the Republican nominee is Donald Trump, that they're going to come out because they hate Donald Trump so much? Or 
let's just say it's not Donald Trump. Then maybe we do have to rev up Democrats for somebody besides Donald Trump, and maybe it's because they're behind Joe Biden. I think that's like, the real question going forward. Another question is, of course, there's been some questions about Kamala Harris, people in the Democratic Party raising concerns, partly because of Joe Biden's age. Had you get a sense of that they've kind of overcome that, aren't worried about that anymore? And is there any indication of kind of how much they're going to be using her and relying on her to, uh, to, to boost the enthusiasm in certain mm -hmm. sections of segments of voters? No, that is a really good question. And I think it is actually something that the Biden campaign privately, they want to say this publicly, but privately acknowledges that is a difficulty that they need to overcome. I think a lot of people thought that Kamala Harris would be a rock star VP. She did really well on the trail and not so well as his vice president, which is common. I mean, oftentimes, and when you're in the White House, the VPs are the one who get the bad policies and the ones that have to take the fall for some of the more negative coverage. I mean, wouldn't her office also say that they haven't given her opportunities to be a rock star? hundred percent, they would. Um, they think that that the Biden, that Joe Biden and the administration has been sidelining the VP on many of the the key issues. And she did have a recent big win with Tennessee when she went right down um, amid all of the politics and uh, the craziness and chaos in Tennessee recently. That was a great moment for her. But I do think that I think one thing that we're watching for, and I haven't been able to get an answer from the Biden administration on this, is how involved will she be exactly. on the campaign? She will, of course, be employed. She will be a top surrogate for the president. She will be making a series of campaign stats alongside him and on her own. But how much will they lean into her and really see her as an asset rather than just part of, of his exactly. campaign as is? Do you have approval numbers? I mean, look, Joe, Bi look, Joe Biden's approval rating among Democrats has consistently been in the low not to mid-80s. Not among Democrats. I mean, but if you general, look overall, yeah. look, his approval rating is stuck in the low to mid-40s. That is not the place you want to be if, you know, next year. Most presidents who have approval ratings that low lose re-election. Mm -hmm. And so I think the question, again, I, I, I just sort of pose it, is, is him going out to campaign? Is that going to perhaps raise his approval ratings, right? We've seen inflation come back a little bit. We have certainly, we've come out of the COVID pandemic. Uh, gas prices are lower than they were, say, you know, last year at their peaks. So the economy is starting to get a little bit better, yet Joe Biden's approval rating is as steady as it goes in the low to mid-40s, right where Donald Trump's approval rating was. And the difference between this campaign and that one is Joe Biden's favorable rating for much of that campaign was net positive. Now it's net negative. And we're basically perhaps faced with sort of this reboot, a bizarro version of the 2016 campaign where we had two very disliked candidates. We may get that again. And I, I, I proffered to the to the panel just asking, what are we going to do? I mean, it's just going to be bizarre covering I know. this. It will be. And I do think, though, one very key point that we have to notice, there aren't really serious opposition candidates yeah. or people who are challenging Joe Biden. I mean, we're not seeing he is definitely the favorite and there aren't many people who are realistically going to beat him we for just the nomination. We just had Marianne Williamson on. Right. Um, <laughs> not, not to, <laughs> Harry, to detract from her. Harry, <laughs> Harry, I think that you dismiss her because you're a numbers guy and so you dismiss it too easily because I know that she doesn't have high numbers. However, she, um, in debates and when you talk to her one-on-one, -on -one, she has a lot of ideas and policies that she articulates really well, mm -hmm. often better yeah. than President Biden. Mm -hmm. And also keep in mind that him announcing he'll be obviously trying to do more to tout his record. We Obviously, the, the White House is always trying to tout the record of the president, but this is going to give him a chance to do so on a more regular basis. And maybe they think that that will help with the enthusiasm bringing out, you know, beginning to remind people why they should choose him 
several months down the line. And I do think for people who aren't exactly political people like myself, the age thing is a major issue. I mean, I have friends that don't, you know, the economy is a major issue for them, but they look at Biden and they say he was old four years ago. What is he going to look like four years from now? And it's a major issue. So if there is a candidate that even has just a little bit more spirit and spunk, I think that could go a long way. Yeah, that, that person will certainly get a look. Yes. Um, because he's the oldest president ever. He, he is. And, you know, if he and Trump become the nominees, what is their combined age and election day going to be near, what, less 160? <laughs> I mean, it's, like it's, it's, sure. it's nuts. And I, I do wonder if there's a genuine sort of challenger who has been, you know, elected before, whether they could really make a run at Joe Biden. But at this particular point, the two challengers that have gotten the most press are Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who obviously has his own issues that he has to contend with in the early numbers you know, suggests that Joe Biden's running at what, about 70 percent against the two of them? Not exactly at this point. Look at the numbers. Uh, are, do they suggest that either one of those would be a strong challenger? Um, Elena, I know you're also keeping an eye on um, Governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. And today he gave a talk in which he talked about doing away with grievance politics mm -hmm. What would that world look like? <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny because it is a message that we're seeing increasingly more Republicans and Republican candidates who are running in 2024, people like Tim Scott, try to embrace. They're saying we need to go back to Reagan, Reaganism, where he was optimistic. It's a sunny day in America. Um, and, you know, obviously contrasting starkly with the former president, Donald Trump, and Ron DeSantis, who have been all about grievance politics. Their rhetoric is very negative and dark. Um, and it's funny, I think if you look at Glenn Youngkin, he's someone who I know just months ago, talking to a lot of Republicans, both on Capitol Hill, throughout Washington, strategists, they all thought that Youngkin could be almost a dark horse in the Republican race uh, for the nomination. And now it looks like he's pulling away from running again. But his speech today did sound very heavily like he's thinking about his future political ambitions. And we have some sound, I think, if we want to play that. I think, first of all, we've allowed ourselves to fall into, I think, a trap of, of grievance politics. And grievance politics is, is I think, underpinned by a myopic uh, focus on oneself. I think that... Uh, Grievance politics has run its course, and we've got to put it down. I mean, that's a wonderful aspiration. I mean, and, and I don't mean to make light of it. Not happening. I'm not, not happening. I don't mean to make light of it. Carrying I think that's the soundtrack. I think that's a wonderful aspiration, and I think that he should be applauded for saying that. I just. Not everybody's going along with it, I guess, is my point. No, and as we get closer, of course, to elections, and that'll just get thrown out the window. I mean, it doesn't last very long. But good aspiration. You know, I was thinking about, I was thinking when he said that, I was thinking, didn't he just do something that was kind of grievance? You would argue, you could argue this, what he calls a parental rights movement when it comes to giving parents who are concerned about what their kids are being taught in schools. That's what helped him get elected a couple, a few years ago. And some might call that grievance politics. Well, that's not what I was referring to. I was referring to how he had said something that snuck, that struck people as snide about Nancy Pelosi right after her husband yeah. had been hurt. But then I found out, our producers told me that he wrote her a handwritten note, apology note after that. Yeah. So that's fantastic, you know, that maybe he is putting his money where his mouth is, Harry. Maybe so. I, I think that Democrats in that state would very much disagree with the idea that Glenn Youngkin is, you know, going to bring this kumbaya moment to politics. Look, we, we talk about this all of the time, you know, that we need to come together as a country, that we need, you know, people who reach across the aisle. But the fact is that the further we get along, you know, when I was in high school, we were saying that. 
And now, you know, and then in college, I was saying that. And then when I got my first job, we were saying that. And every <laughs> moment along the way, we've just become more and more polarized and more and more nasty. So you'll excuse me if my cynicism gets in the way of me believing that we're about to reach this moment where we're all going to join hands together and the sunshine is going to rain down on us all with a rainbow then forming. I feel like you're an Americant right now. I feel like that's not a can-do attitude, Harry. <laughs> well, you know, maybe uh, I, I need a little bit more uh, sunshine and maybe come, maybe come the sunrise, I will join you, you in the American. I look, thank you. I look forward to that. Stick around, everybody. Next, we're going to hear from one CEO who wants his workers back in the office so much that he praised one for selling the family dog so he could work more. Harry's got the numbers on how many of you are still working from home. We'll all have a word about that. Next. <laughs> I learned from one of our leaders that in the midst of hearing this, this message, went out and sold their family dog, which breaks my heart. But truly, um, that, those are the sacrifices that are being made. And I honor you for those sacrifices. That was James Clark, CEO of the digital marketing and technology company called ClearLink. He was in a town hall calling for employees to return to the office and sell your pet to prove your commitment. (laughs) Harry Enton has been following this story. Harry, I know you could never have a pet. You work so much and you're in the, you are in the office. You haven't left the office actually for years. I haven't. You have not left. (laughs) Um, And you could never have a pet, right? You don't have one. Well, I do not have one though. I love dogs, especially small dogs, Shih Tzus, Lassa Apsos. Uh, The girlfriend (laughs) loves Cavalier, King Charles or King Charles Cavalier, however it's, however it's the uh, order. Well, that's out of the question. Tell her. Yeah. Well, given the work patterns, it may be a little bit out of the question. Yeah. So what's happening with Americans? Have they gone back to work? How many people are working back in the office nowadays? Sure. So let's take a little walk. We're going to go on a fun little exercise. Look at this. We have a magic wall here where I'm going to answer your question, Allison. (laughs) So why don't we take a look at how Americans are currently working, right? So the clear majority of Americans are fully on site at this point, 58%. Second, hybrid at 29%. Fully work from home is just 13%. So if you're fully working from home, perhaps you're one of the lucky ones. Most Americans are are in the office at least some of the time. Now, why do people like to work from home? So here are two top reasons people like to work from home. Number one, 71% say it's easier to maintain a work-life balance, all right? Second, meet work deadlines, 56%, which is interesting, right? Because you might think working from home might make it more difficult to meet deadlines. But in fact, those who work from home say it makes it easier. The clear majority of them do. Of course, there is some disagreement between workers and their employers. So how many days a week should employees work at home? Well, the average among workers, they say 2.2, but employers say 1.5 on average. So employers are much more likely to want to get those employees back to the office while the employees, especially those working from home, are, let's say, a little hesitant to go back. Well done, Harry. Um, great walk, great magic walk. It's, it's yeah, not easy. It's not easy. Oh, no. Now I'm going to sit better than I did last break because uh, the girlfriend got in touch with me and said she didn't like the way I was sitting. Okay, this is excellent. The way you're Thank sitting you. now is great. Okay, fantastic. Um, Bryn, you, you okay? all of you reporters okay? work, as far as I can tell, seven days a week. You work seven days um, a week. You're constantly doing breaking news. My son thinks so. Yes, yeah. and you're a mom. Yeah. And so can you imagine... 
working only three days a week in the I, office? I mean, I still laugh because I have friends who get like stipends for lunch for like $20 to come in one day a week just to come in to get free lunch. I'm like, what? Like, can I please get that? But they're being lured back in. Lured back in, but still two, what, two years now after the pandemic, they're still being lured back in with a, with a one day a week. Um, yeah, no, it would be incredible. And I, as I said in the break, I'd be in favor of just the four day week 10 hours a day. I'm cool with that. Like, we don't need to work from home. I'll come in four days a week. That'd be great. And that seems to work as we've seen. But I am actually surprised at Harry's numbers, the number of people who are in full time. Mm-hmm. That was higher than I thought. I'm not going to lie. Much higher. I, I thought it was a yeah. lot lower based on who I know. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> exactly. People are, people, you know, my sister was telling me at, at one point, you know, we can't change the rules. We can't demand everyone come in because people are just going to change jobs. People got so used to working from home that they they don't want they don't want to change. They're like, this is the way it's gotta be. Three days maybe, well three days at home is probably what a lot of people that I know mm-hmm. are dealing with. When yeah. you say fully at work, you mean five days a week? You have a full-time job, right? And if your full-time job is five days, then you're five days at work. I would note, though, that there's a big economic divide, right? A big income divide. People of lower income are far more likely to go in five days a week. There's also a, a, a divide between different parts of the country, right? In major cities, you're less likely to go in five days a week than, let's say, if you work in a small town or a rural, rural area. In Is your... that right? I would have thought it was the opposite, because in a, if you live in a major city, you can walk to work, you can walk to your office place. And if you're living sort of in the, you know, further out, it's harder. But but think about, the think about we're talking metropolitan areas, right? So think about someone who lives, let's say, a, a suburb of New York might be in Westchester County, Right. Well, that might be a big, pretty big commute for them, especially given the traffic times. You know, if you're trying to cross into the city and you're like, oh, I don't want to travel across, you know, one of the East River crossings or the Henry Hudson Parkway, that could take a long time. You're much more likely to stay home versus, you know, if you're in a rural area, you might face less traffic. It might be easier to go in. So that's something that I think we've seen in this office, right, is why do people not want to come in? It's because they don't want to face that long commute. Yeah, or the types of jobs. I'm thinking in a rural area, you have people who work on farms Mm. or have the type of jobs where it's required to be at work. It might not be the office as we know it, uh, but have to go in every day. The thing that I find interesting too, though, is that I was looking at some surveys today that were just showing how so many Americans feel like they, and and your number showed it too, Harry, that they feel like they're getting more done because they are not commuting, that they're able to, to have that work-life balance, but also are actually improving their, the time that they're spending working or even working longer because they're working at home, which I found really interesting because I always thought that you go into the office and that's where the real work happens, but it doesn't seem that that's the case. Yeah, me too. I thought I found that interesting also, but they also sometimes say that working at home, they're working more right. because yes. there's no boundary. Right. So they don't leave the office. You always have your phone on you at all times. People can get in touch with you at 10 PM. And so there's, you know, you're not putting it to bed at a certain time. Yeah. You're never office. turning your brain off. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, you know, our jobs in, you know, journalism are some of the jobs that have not been able to change at all. In other words, you can't work from home. You are on scene at the breaking news. You're traveling to wherever the news is. You're covering politics, even if it's a late night, you know, event with uh, whichever politician that you're following. And Harry, for some reason, you're just always here. I don't, I don't think I, you have to be, but you are. I, I like the free snacks that we now get. Uh, I like the people I work with. Uh, I mean, you know, but I've had an interesting experience, right? Because I really came from more of a digital background, writing instead of being on TV. And what I find is I actually write my articles better at home 
but I will not appear on TV from home. You know, the moment I was able to come back into the office and didn't have to appear on Cisco with the, you know, the scrambled image, and then I couldn't <laughs> see what slides were coming up. I remember I was back in the office, you know, wearing a mask, you know, had like 10 masks on at one time, but at least I was back in the office. But I understand the appeal from working from home, yeah. you know, especially when I'm writing, it's just easier for me. Yeah, got and it. You can- Form your day the way you want. You can throw a load of laundry in and get it done while you're just like writing up your data, and you can just form your day better. That's what that's what I'm jealous of. I know me too. Just laundry. I just want to get it done. Get a lot done because you don't have interruptions. Like I love the interruptions. I love the social aspect of being at work. I think the collaboration is great. I look forward to seeing Brent every day. I'm like Brent's not here. Oh no. But I mean, I do think that you could get a lot more done sometimes if you are at home. You have no interruptions. No, at least no physical interruptions because it's kind of rude to someone walks into your office. You're not just going to be like, uh-huh. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you know, have no one interrupting you, then you can just you know, buckle down and get it done. And then, of course, like you said, that you don't realize a day should be ending. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, oh, wait a second. You, you're, you look down, you've, you've worked an extra hour and a half that you wouldn't have done if you were actually leaving the office at a certain time. Well, don't worry. That's not in either of your futures. So you don't <laughs> have to worry about it. Um, all right, next, Bryn's going to fill us in on a story she's been following. An Oklahoma death row inmate has avoided death many times. He's had three last meals. And now, despite maintaining his innocence, he faces execution again next month. One Oklahoma death row inmate has been trying to overturn his murder conviction. In 1997, he was convicted of killing his boss, but he maintained his innocence throughout his trial and beyond. He's avoided execution three times so narrowly that he's been given three last meals. But now he faces execution again on May 18th. CNN's Bryn Gingras has been covering this story since last summer. Bryn, three last meals? And then what? Then at the last minute, they say, no, you don't have to be executed? There's been stays or there's been reprieves. In one case, there was a botch execution. So Oklahoma had to review how it was conducting lethal injections. And so his stay got delayed and delayed. So he's had actually nine execution dates, um, but made it up to that last meal three times. So we're getting closer to that last meal, too. This is a case I've been covering since last summer. I mean, it honestly, quite frankly, breaks my heart. It's very emotional because this man, um, he's fighting for his life. And I want to give you a little backstory about the case, but he never even actually killed the person he's accused of killing. So what happened was the prosecutors at the time say he actually was a mastermind behind and ordered a co-worker of his to kill their boss, even though he there was no circumstantial evidence tying him to this killing. Basically, all the prosecution at the time had was this other employee named Justin Snead to go on stand and basically say, Richard Glossop did it, and he told me to do it. And that's it. And that man did not go to death row for that. He's serving life in prison. Meanwhile, in Oklahoma, Richard Glossop is going to face death for not even, quote-unquote, pulling a trigger. Um, so from so, your research, <clears throat> you believe he is not guilty? I mean, I'm supposed to be an unbiased, but yeah. I mean, and I'm not the only one. Listen, this is, case has been picked up by Susan Sarandon, Richard Branson. It's made international headlines. Um, and the most interesting part about this case is that Republicans in a red state who firmly believe in capital punishment, who, uh, you know, think that there are certain criminals that deserve the death penalty, they don't believe he should be put to death. And they are fighting for him to be taken off of death row. And this was a big blow to them because they really thought that this last chance was going to finally turn the criminal court of appeals, the five justices' minds, and it didn't. So that's who has to decide. But the governor can grant a reprieve. The governor can. We're not quite there yet. Uh, There's a clemency hearing next week, and the parole board has to ask the governor to consider clemency. So he's not there yet. But 
Backing up just a little bit, what the justices decided today was that uh, they would not overturn his conviction. They would not vacate it, which was what they were hoping was going to happen. But the big thing is, is that they were considering new evidence. And that's why they thought he was actually going to get out of jail this time, his defense team. And part of this new evidence was a prosecution's box of evidence that was never in all these years turned over to the defense. A whole box of evidence. And in that evidence, there is paperwork showing that this person who lied on the stand or allegedly lied on the stand, that he wanted to recant his testimony. He wanted to take it back. There was other evidence saying that he um, was bipolar and that was never even told to the defense. So that was never even put in front of a jury. So there's just tons and tons of evidence that not has only been collected by his defense team, but legislature, uh, legislators rather in uh, the, in the um, Oklahoma state. The three last meals thing, I just can't get past that. No. It's so harrowing to know the trauma that he has to he has to be going through every time he has one of those or the nine different dates for his sentencing. How common is that? I, I haven't been following these cases as closely yeah. as you. How common is it for someone to have multiple different dates or having it keep get pushed back? Multiple different dates it could be common, right? Because there are always appeals that are always in play, right? Mm -hmm. But as far as getting to that last day before you actually could be executed and going through that mental trauma, that's obviously not very common. And especially in Oklahoma, this isn't just like uh, today is my last day and tomorrow is my execution date. There is a full week that happens before they reach that last meal date where they are in a cell by themselves, lights on, all they have is a piece of paper and a notepad. They don't even get a blanket because they are worried about, you know, possibly a hanging or some sort of suicide. It's torture. And actually, the legislature has worked to to reverse even those methods of what was happening in Oklahoma. So there's a lot that's happening behind the scenes between the state legislature and particularly with this case. But it does seem like many people in this state don't want to see this man die. But I do really want to point out really quickly, if we can go to this sound, because this broke my heart today, because Jake Tapper uh, talked to his attorney in response to what the Criminal Court of Appeals decided today. And I want you to hear what his attorney said. He said today to me, Don, you know, should I be prepared to be killed on May 18th? Uh, and, and that was about as low a point as I've seen him. And this is his ninth execution date. Uh, this is this is tough. He's he's been down this road far too many times. No one should have to endure that. And that personally hurt me because I actually talked to Richard, too, um, just a few months ago um, on the phone. We didn't get to go to Oklahoma to actually meet him in person. But he was so happy. Um, he had met, he's met a woman that he's married and, and he's he's ready to in jail. So he had a like jailhouse wedding. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And uh, actually, I'm. Um, yeah, no, they did get married. Um, so, yeah, he was really looking forward to to this, this what was in front of the Criminal Court of Appeals. And he was really hopeful that they were going to finally see his side of things and he was going to get out and be able to actually spend time with her. And so to hear him say that, you know, he's asking about this date, am I going to have to prepare to die? That broke me today. So I have to ask, without knowing much about the case besides what I read before, you know, knowing that yeah. we were going to do this segment, why... Why haven't they granted, you know, any of these appeals? What, what, what's exactly going on? Yeah, I mean, if you ask Don Knight, his attorney, he thinks there's a vendetta. I mean, that's the only explanation that that he can come up with because uh, there has been just so much evidence. And again, they're not even asking for the case to just go away. They just want a new hearing. Like, just hear the evidence. Let a jury listen. Um, and so, yeah, he, there's really no clear answer to that. But I will say the they're... The Republican lawmaker who's really ahead of this and who's really fought for this the longest, he has said if, if they don't do something, he's going to go after impeachment of these justices. He told Jake Tapper that today, which 
Wow. That could be pretty explosive in Oklahoma. What do we know about Glossop that makes all of these people believe that he's innocent, it, that he couldn't really have been a mastermind of this? Yeah, I think it's just the totality of all the evidence that's been uncovered. It's not just that box that I just described to you guys. Uh, there was also an entire report that was commissioned last summer by a number of bipartisan lawmakers, a lot of Republicans. Uh, and it was like 350 pages by Reed Smith, an investigative group and law firm. And they found just so much evidence that just raised questions. You know, you don't necessarily have to think he's he's innocent, but it at least raised questions. And that's the point here is how can you put a man to death if you're not certain he did it? Yeah. Also, the botched execution is very disturbing. Yeah. Um, Bryn, thanks for alerting us all to this. And please yeah. keep us posted what happens before May 18th. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, any parent can tell you that school children are facing a lot of challenges after the pandemic, particularly when it comes to reading. So we're going to tell you why third grade is crucial for reading. Athena's been doing a lot of reporting on this, and she will bring us up to speed on what we need to know. Millions of children missed out on vital classroom time during the pandemic, and now we know that their reading skills have taken a big hit. A report by the National Assessment of Educational Progress shows that just 33 percent of fourth grade students performed at or above the proficient level on the reading assessment in 2022. That's two percentage points lower than it was in 2019. More significantly, 37 percent of fourth grade students performed below the basic level in 2022. Athena's been reporting on education in this post-pandemic era. Athena, it's so interesting because, you know, there's all these culture wars going on in the schools while kids can't read. Right. They were talking about banning books, but let's make sure the kids can read the books that they are allowed to read. And there's a lot of focus on the learning loss during the pandemic. Uh, there was an AP article today out of Georgia talking, focusing on that state, on one school in, in outside Atlanta that's trying to help third graders catch up. These are exactly kind of the age that lost out so much on some of the beginning fundamentals. These are children who may have missed class over Zoom. I mean, try teaching a six or seven year old over Zoom, these these fundamentals, that's part of the problem. But it's bigger than that. It's something that goes way beyond the pandemic or stretches back, you know, a couple of decades. I'll tell you, though, this is not something I was aware of until I began digging into this. There is this whole new way of teaching kids to read that I wasn't aware of. I don't know about you, but I learned to read uh, on phonics, hooked on phonics. You know, you're, you're learning letters. You're learning what letters combination makes what makes what sound. There is a whole new way that began to emerge in the 80s, 90s, and really took hold in certain parts of the country, all over the country, but not every single school. It was popular in a lot of places. It's called balanced literacy. And it was this idea that kids should not be sounding out words or they should sound out words as a last resort. It's 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 stunning. It's an idea that you should see that see that that, that, that on, the, on the left yeah. balanced literacy. There's those concentric circles. Those are the cues that that children are supposed to use to try to guess the word. So they're reading by guessing, and so you'll have a sentence. And there are some examples where they'll cover up the entire word. So it's almost like fill in the blank. A six year old, a six or seven year old, you're asking to fill in the blank without even seeing the first letter of the word. They're meant to sort of deduce based on. You know, the context of the sentence, what the word could be. But so many times that word could be so many things. Then maybe you see the first letter and you begin to say, okay, well, what letter, what words start with that letter? It's an odd way of teaching children how to read because so much of it 
uh, relies on memorization. Of mm. course, you memorize sight words, the kind of words that are hard to decode. Decoding is when you're spelling it out and sounding it out. But the thing is, you know, these these teachers will tell you that children would read the same books over and over again, but if you gave them a new book they hadn't seen before, they would really struggle because they're not learning the actual tools to sound out the word. And also, you know, we were on the way to this, this uh, shoot we did today. We passed by a Wawa. There was a snickerdoodle. No one's going to ever guess that. Yeah. No one's ever going to guess that. You have to be able to spell out the word so that any word you come across, you have the confidence to, to spell it. This is so funny it. because I re- now you're reminding me of teaching my daughters to read when they were, you know, or reading to them, basically. We would read to them. Okay, so they're two years old. And at one point, my daughter could do this sight gag where she could read the whole yes. book, but she wasn't really reading. It. She'd memorize it. it. But it was a fantastic sight gag because this little toddler yeah. could read the entire book. I'm going through it now. I'm like, you're so smart. <laughs> you're a prodigy. You're a prodigy. But, but basically, why are they doing this? Put that graphic up again because I'm fascinated sure. by what they're doing. So put the graphic up about the, you were saying, balanced literacy. Right. And so why are, why have they changed it from phonics? Well, that I, that's unclear. I'm still not really getting to the bottom of this. There, there, are, there are several influential sort of academic counselors, consultants, maybe they, they actually are academics, but they are, their, their theories are disproven. And yet there's a lot of people who over time end up having a less stake in these, these, this way of teaching. But uh, when I examined this, I, I found that people say that those cues, those sort of like trying to guess the word by the context of the sentence, that's what you fall back on if you're struggling to read. It's not the way you should be, it's not the first uh, thing that you should be doing. And so now we're seeing a lot of focus on what's called the science of reading, which sounds all fancy, but it's really just focusing more on phonics, a lot more on phonics. And so that's what we're seeing in this Atlanta school that the AP wrote about. Um, And in some states that are really emphasizing uh, this way of sounding out letters and words and phrases, they're seeing better scores. And even the school we visited in Pennsylvania, you know, they were trying balanced literacy for about 18 months. It was not even a full two school years. This principal said it was my idea. I had to swallow, you know, swallow my pride and admit that it wasn't working. They were finding uh, under their previous assessment, maybe like a quarter of the students were at grade level. Now bringing back a lot more phonics, they actually spent an extra 40 minutes doing, you know, helping children understand their individual, you know, syllables that they need to work on, all of that, they found that they went from about 20% grade level to 60% only since the beginning of this year. Wow. So it's been really remarkable. And we actually talked to a student whose who's reading has just skyrocketed. Uh, her, her progress has been dramatic um, just over the course of however many months it's been in the school year. I feel like all <laughs> schools should be listening to this right now. It's and stunning. Because that's old school. What you're saying is they're going back to the old school way of sounding things out. And they may not. They say, well, it's not just that. Because, you know, it is important to understand to understand the meaning of words and other things, not just phonics, right? But you, it, it should be a both-and approach or yeah. both-and-and-and. There are lots of things that you need to do. But one of the examples that I heard was that, you know, you have a kid who thinks that invite, mistakes invited for invaded – that's going to be very different if you're talking about, you know, Poland in 1939. <laughs> oh my God. You have to oh, understand. Wow. And of course, third grade, fourth grade, these are very important times. That's when a lot of these students get assessed. And, you know, after these grades is when they're going to start having to really, you know, use reading to learn. And even this principal was telling me this, this uh, math assessment that's coming up, you know, a statewide test in, in Pennsylvania. Those are, those are reading questions. Yeah. They're word problems. So reading, we all know, is fundamental, but it's it's really doing, a lot of these teachers feel that they, they did a lot of children a disservice over years 
because people just didn't, they didn't develop a love of reading. They found it wasn't enough just to surround the children with books. Uh, no, you have to actually teach them how to read. Yeah. I just feel like if it ain't broke, why, uh, like, uh, right. I don't it's understand stunning. how this even developed. It's like, stunning. why did we yeah. get away from it in the first place? Yes, why, why fix something that ain't broke? Yeah. Um, Athena, thanks for alerting us to that <laughs> great story. Okay, up next, on the lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. Our fabulous panel of reporters are going to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Harry, what do you, you've got some exciting news. Go. Okay, so I have a podcast, Margins of Error. It is up for a, a Webby in the Arts and Culture Individual Episode category. Exciting. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Um, I was ahead as of this morning or early, early this morning, but then... For the final 24 hours, you can't actually look at the standings. So I have no idea what's actually going to happen. But the polls close at 3 a.m. Eastern time. So about three hours from now. So you basically want all of our viewers to immediately go online and vote for you. So if you go to <laughs> at Forecaster Enten uh, on Twitter, that's E-N-T-E-N, uh, or you go to Forecaster Enten on uh, Instagram, I believe either one of those sites, I, I have a picture on Twitter with a dog and me, uh, Mitra Kalita's dog. Uh, okay, medicine, yeah, it, it, a hard dog. wrap, yeah, go. Yeah, any event. Uh, <laughs> you can click on there and you're able to vote for me. I, I need your votes, people. I'm looking right in the camera right now. I need your votes. Got it. Thank you. Okay, very, wow, excellent. Okay. <laughs> I'll be doing it. Yeah, okay, Elena, what are you vote. keeping an eye on? Um, I am looking out for the debt limit. So this has been the issue that is just consuming D.C. right now, Capitol Hill, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, really. Um, And the latest news is that Republicans are planning to put a bill on the floor to raise the debt limit for a year uh, or $1.5 trillion, whichever comes first, uh, next week. It's not a bill that will ever pass the Senate, but the whole point is to try to force the president to the negotiating table and try to figure out how they can come to an agreement before we reach that X date when markets will freak out and the economy, you know, everyone, the uncertainty around the economy will send markets into a tizzy. And so um, it's really fascinating to me that we're so close now, we're two months away, and that the bill that they're even putting on the on the floor next week isn't something that would ever pass into law. That is, that's good to know. That right. I mean, it's classic politics. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that reporters like myself are always banging their heads against the wall because you know that so much the time and effort that you're putting in and every day into these things is just things that are never going to pass. So that's what I'm watching. Okay, Athena. Well, we all know about this terrible accidental shooting on the Rust movie set. Well, we now know that Alec Baldwin, the charges against him have been dropped. And so now the lawyers for the armorer, that's the young woman who was whose job was to make sure the gun was clear, didn't have any bullets in it. They believe that that she, her name is Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, will also be exonerated. Of course, she had a slightly different role yeah. in this on this job than, than, yeah. than Alec Baldwin did. So we'll wait and see if and when that happens. But they're certainly very hopeful that, that it will. Okay, so Brynn, I know that you're following the 20-year-old who 
turned into the wrong driveway yeah. and got shot to death. Yeah, we need to see if there's more charges that are going to come against this shooter, Kevin Monaghan. Uh, I was in court yesterday. It was so emotional. I mean, this 20-year-old's boyfriend was there, who she, of course, died next to uh, that night. And, uh, you know, the prosecutors say that they're looking into more charges because, let's remember, there wasn't just her and her boyfriend. There were two others in the car and other cars as well that uh, he shot at. So I'm honestly looking forward to a week where we don't hear about these shootings because this week has been tough. I'm yeah, no, I pray. We all pray. We yeah. pray for that week. Um, thank you all very much. Great to have you all here. And tomorrow on CNN This Morning, it's straight out of a Hollywood script. $15 million worth of gold stolen from an airport inside the rare gold heist. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.